2: Friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Wow. A lot going on in the world today. I, see, I, I say that way too much, but it seems it's, it's just like this never-ending reality show that, that, uh, that Donald Trump keeps bringing us. And, 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 and now it's getting really strange. I mean, in the area of religion. And the, the Republicans have always had this bizarre relationship with religion where uh, they, they have used, and, and, and actually, you know, before the 1960s, it was the Democrats who were doing the same thing. You know, whichever party has the, uh, holds the mantle of being the, the, the racist party, although both of them were fairly racist um, up until the last 40, 50 years here. But this the, <laughs> the sales pitch that the Republican Party has made, that, that they're the party of Jesus, right? They're the party, the, the, the Christian party. They're the party of the guy who says that, you know, everybody who wants health care should have it and it should be free. They're the, they're the party of the guy who says that anybody who's hungry, we should feed them, that if people are homeless, we should, cl- we should house them, that if they're naked, we should clothe them, that if they're in prison, we should go visit them. And, I mean, you know, this is their guy, right? Jesus, you know, laying out these principles, but, you know, they're, they're not doing what he's saying. And, and now you've got Franklin Graham coming out, Billy Graham's son. And he, you know, Billy's got to be rolling over in his grave. I mean, this is just so sad. Uh, William Franklin Graham III, in uh, January... He had come out and said, uh, "You know, well, you know, Trump says he didn't have an affair with Star-Army Daniels. We should all believe him. <clears throat> that's what he was saying four months ago, five months ago, I guess. And now he's saying, <laughs> as it becomes more and more obvious that Trump actually did get it on with Starby Daniels, and that's why he paid the hundred and thirty grand." Now, now Franklin Graham is going. I think this thing with Stormy Daniels and so forth is nobody's business. We've got other business at hand that we need to deal with. Right, nobody's business. Now, you know, he was singing a very different song in 1998 when Republicans were trying to impeach Bill Clinton, and this this points out how, you know, how this political party has bonded itself to these religious fanatics. Back in 98, in a Wall Street Journal op-ed titled Clinton's Sins Are Not Private, Franklin Graham, that's the same guy, the son of Billy, said private conduct does have public consequences. Just look at how many have already been pulled under by the wake of the president's sin. Mr. Clinton's wife and daughter, Ms. Lewinsky, her parents, White House staff members, friends and supporters, public officials and an unwitting American public. The God of the Bible says that what one does in private does matter. If if he will lie to or mislead his wife and daughter, those with whom he is most intimate, what will prevent him from doing the same to the American public? Wrote Franklin Graham back when they were talking about impeaching Bill Clinton. And now that the talk is about, well, what do we do about Donald Trump, Franklin Graham? Oh, I think this whole Stormy Daniels thing and so forth is Nobody, nobody's business. Nobody's business. Meanwhile, Paige Patterson, I know it sounds like a woman's name, it's a man. Uh, Paige is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, or the uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Excuse me. And uh, Mr. Patterson says uh, abused women should not divorce their abusive husbands. And he told a story in a sermon about a fellow noticing an attractive 16-year-old girl walking by going, yeah, she's nice, and then telling, the, in his sermon, telling the story that another guy said, oh, yeah, she is, man, is she built, etc." And a number of the women in the congregation were offended with this story. After the Washington Post, this is from a Washington Post piece by Sarah Bailey, uh, Sarah Pullman Bailey. After the Washington Post published clips of Patterson's sermons which, uh, that included comments about women, the Southwestern media website that hosted them stopped working. Oh, gee, we can't find those anymore. One of the videos included a 2010 address in which Patterson called out female cemetery, seminary students for not doing enough to make themselves pretty, saying, shouldn't be any wonder why some of you don't get a second look. So, you know, here we're seeing the these mega churches. They this is a this is a, a classic deal with the devil. And what The question in my mind is, what do we do about this? What do we do with this, with this situation? You now have, you now have uh, Republicans in Kentucky, this House Bill 40, calling for a day of prayer in the state's schools. Now, the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment says that you know, government can't establish religion. In fact, there were two major cases in 62 and 63 on this. And basically what they said is that, you know, the school can't run the prayer. The school can provide a moment of meditation. Students, it has to be student-directed, student-initiated activities. But, you know, we have a long history of using religion in our schools to beat up specific religions. uh, From the 1840s until, you know, the, the the early 1900s. You know, a lot of school prayer was actually meant to uh, trash Catholics. In fact, Horace Mann's whole sales pitch for public education in the 1890s in Boston was to— it was on behalf of the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner, the secret society, sometimes called the Know-Nothings. That was their slogan, I Know-Nothing. Was, you know, we will break the back of the Catholic parents by outlawing Catholic schools— and forcing these Catholics into public schools. It was, it's a whole interesting history. You can find that elsewhere. But. So E.J. Dion in, in the Washington Post a couple of days ago, no wonder there's an exodus from religion. Are you leaving religion? Are the people that you're knowing leaving religion? Is a religion, you know, this, he's, he's talking about this study, this, and now we see uh, Reverend Patrick Conroy, the, the Jesuit priest, uh, for the House, Paul Ryan has decided not to ask, not to demand that he stay fired. But uh, this, the House Republican leadership, E.J. Dion writes, was more inclined to push out a chaplain than to impose accountability on a president who's a pr- proven liar and trashes the rule of law for his own selfish purposes day after day. And then they talk about this, this book, Amazing Grace, this 2010 book by Robert Putnam and David Campbell, and what they found is that increasingly people, particularly young people, have no interest in religion. They're leaving religion. This trend, he writes, uh, E.J. Dion writes, is especially pronounced among adults under 30. Roughly 40% of people under 30 claim no connection to religion. And he says uh, young people have, come to, reli- in, have ag- come to regard religion, in Putnam and Campbell's words, as, quote, judgmental, homophobic, hypo- hypocritical, and too political. And meanwhile, John Pavlovitz, a former megachurch pastor, I shared part of this with you last week. Uh, He has a a blog. His his blog is johnpavlovitz.com, P-A-V-L-O-V-I-T-Z.com. And the top top post there is, uh, good news, church, you're dying. Good news and bad news here. He says, you're dying because of your hypocrisy people see the ever-widening chasm between who you say you are and what they regularly experience in your presence and he talks about the difference in you know the hospitality essentially that Jesus promotes versus the you know, the hate of, the, of the, what the church is pr- promoting these days they've listened to you preach incessantly about immorality immora, immorality of the, in the world the dangers of greed, the corrupt nature of power, the poison of untruth, the evils of sexual perversion, and watched you willingly align with a president embodying all of these. Is Donald Trump going to destroy the church? Is Mike Pence going to destroy the the church? He says, you're dying because of your willful ignorance. People are tired of your war on science. They're sick of you arguing with biology. They know the earth is round. They know it's billions, not thousands of years old. They know dinosaurs walked on it. They know it's warming rapidly. They know that people here don't choose their sexuality. They know whoever and whatever God is doesn't appoint presidents or sanction weapons or attack people with tornadoes. You're dying because of your devotion to cruelty. And that's, that's a pretty tough one. People watch you dig in your heels against others. Because of their gender identity and sexual orientation, the way you continually exact violence upon them, the way you try and blame God and the Bible for your fearful bigotry, you're dying because you're complicity and complices in violence. They've seen you so often be a safe haven for misogynists, domestic abusers, sexual predators, and white supremacists. Is the church dying? Is it time for the church to talk? Is it time for you know? And and this at the same time that the church is aggressively working to try to become more powerful politically, and there, I, I realize there's not a the church, and certainly there are some some very progressive uh, denominations out there, uh, Christian, Muslim, and and Jewish, but uh, among others. So where do we go with this? This is the Tom Hartman program. How much damage is the Trump administration doing to religion? And how much damage are people like, you know, Franklin Graham doing to religion too? And welcome back. Oh, let's see here. Helen in Fairview or Fairmont, West Virginia. Hey Helen, what's on your mind today?
0: Oh, Donald Trump, the West Virginia primary and
2: I yeah, uh, that's tomorrow.
0: Yes. But look at our three candidates running on the Republican
2: ticket. Mhm.
0: Blankenship.
2: Is anybody, by the way, on the Democratic side, is anybody challenging Joe Manchin or is he... He's sailing to victory, right?
0: Well, he might sail to victory, but there is a woman running, Mm -hmm. but uh, I'm just so disappointed Don Blankenship. I don't know whether you've seen any of his ads, they're totally disgusting. I have. Have you seen uh, Evan Jenkins, the guy that used to be a Democrat and is now a Republican? And they're all running with Trump pictures, Patrick Morrissey is. And I sincerely hope that West Virginia voters do not elect a one of them because as far as I'm concerned, they're all beneath the yeah. mantle of the Senate.
2: Well, I think Joe I Manchin has done a pretty good job of playing, playing the middle, essentially. You yeah,
0: know, he... Says he works for West Virginia. Of course, I wish they'd never mine another drop of coal in West Virginia myself. I'd like to see him retrain the miners. They're, they're a small workforce compared to everybody else. I'd like to see him uh, get out of those mines and go, uh, you know, go with the wind power or.
2: Uh, well, solar increasingly power that's happening. I mean, it, 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 more and more. Uh, what we're seeing is that the these uh, clean energy jobs are providing the majority of new jobs in America right now number one and number right. two uh, instead of going down into the mines they're they're doing mountaintop removal I mean you know which which takes five guys and a couple of big trucks instead of you know 50 guys and they
0: say it's worse than the underground mining for the environment
2: that's correct that's correct
0: and and also I'd like to say that the co-operators have never been for the miner. They're always for the profit, you know. I don't well, think they've ever considered the safety of miners,
2: ever. Isn't that why Don Blankenship went to jail? Yes, he
0: uh, he wanted production more than he wanted safety, I believe. And he was guilty of lots of safety violations. And now I guess they can dump stuff in our streams now. Yep. I wouldn't want to eat a fish out of our streams. That's for sure. And Donald Trump, I'm so disgusted with the churches because they're not following Jesus. If uh, somebody knocked on their door three times, the Republicans would close it in their face.
2: Oh, and if it was a if it was a person with skin as dark as Jesus's was, the Republicans would call the police on them.
0: Right, or shoot them through the door. Yep. I'm telling you, I've never thought any political party would be so denigrated and so evil as they seem to be anymore.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a real tragedy, uh, Helen. It is. It really is. And
0: we had an episode here. We have American Baptist churches. Well, the First Baptist Church on 9th Street said that they didn't believe homosexuality was a sin. Mm. And guess what they got voted out of? The American Baptist churches.
2: Amazing. So, Amazing. That's that's unfortunate, Helen. Thank you for the call and thanks for sharing your stories from West Virginia with us. It's great to hear from you. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So we've got people in the church calling out the church, and it's not just their support of Trump. It's not just the adultery thing and the lying thing and the, you know, he's he's on he's averaging now nine lies a day. Just, you know, a year ago, he was averaging six lies a day. So it's like they're they're getting cranked up, apparently. And, you know, as far as I know, in his entire eight years in office, Barack Obama told one lie, which is, uh, you know, if you like your health insurance now, before Obamacare, you can keep it after Obamacare, Um, which was technically true. I mean, you can still have insurance, it just won't be the exact same policy, because there's you know, it'll actually be a better policy. But, you know, but that, quote, lie, you know, was used by the Republicans to trash Obama for years, years, right? We've all memorized that, you know, Obama's one lie in eight years. Trump tells nine lies a day. It's incredible. And the church is not calling him out on his lies. They're not calling him out on his adultery. They're not calling him out on basically any of this because they see Donald Trump as a path to more power and more money. And when they're after power and money, you have to ask the question, is it even a church anymore? You know, are you loving mammon more than than God? I mean, it's just, it's not even a church in my opinion. Meanwhile, there's a really interesting story and this is not getting much attention. And I think this is a huge big deal. And that uh, this is this reporting that uh, David Farenthold and uh, Jonathan O'Connell and Jack Gilliam are doing in the New York Times, that it looks like starting around 2006, Donald Trump and his company started buying property for cash. And, I mean, we're talking $400 million worth of properties that they bought with cash. Now, number one, nobody knows where they got this kind of cash. This is a company that had been bankrupt, right? So where did the cash come from, number one? And number two, what does this, what does this tell us about Donald Trump's business? See, buying, buying properties for cash is generally considered stupid in the real estate world. Because say you got $100 million. You can buy one $100 million building and make, say, you know a million dollars a year on it. Or you can use that $100 million as a 10% deposit And you can buy ten hundred million buildings and, you know, make a million bucks on each one of them every month in terms of rent and income and whatnot. And, you know, I mean, you can massively leverage your money, which is what Trump had always been doing prior to 2006. So now there's folks kind of scratching their heads going, huh, is he running a money laundering operation? And if so, for whom? Which takes us to 2014, when uh, golf writer James Dobson is playing golf with Eric Trump. And he says... So I got in the cart with Eric and as we were setting off, I said, Eric, who's funding you? I know no banks because of the recession. No banks have touched a golf course. Who's funding you? And this is what he said. He said, well, we really don't rely on American banks. We have all the funding we need out of Russia. He said, oh yeah, we got some of these guys that really, really love golf and they really invested in our programs. We just go there all the time.
1: Really? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202
2: 808 In fact, Reuters is a reporter, the group of 63 Russian oligarchs, billionaires who have invested a $100 million in Trump property just in Florida. And welcome back, Richard in Greenville, Kentucky. Hey, Richard, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's up?
3: Hey, happy birthday, Tom.
2: Well, thank you, Richard.
3: Uh, I was just wondering uh, why is the church still tax exempt when they? put so much
2: money into politics now? That's a damn good question, Richard. The, uh, the Internal Revenue Service is supposed to enforce the law, but uh, in the face of uh, widespread law breaking and actually during the last election, uh, churches, uh, right-wing Christian churches and churches actually literally passing out campaign material in violation of the law and in some cases sending proof of that to the IRS by way of saying, "Nah, yeah, nah, we dare you to enforce the law, knowing that you know at least while Obama was president that the IRS was not willing to enforce that law against right-wing churches, and obviously as Trump, Trump is president, uh, he's not going to ask the IRS to enforce that law either. So that's that's the situation. And in fact, Trump campaigned on doing away with the so-called Johnson Amendment, which is the law that says that if you uh, want, if you want uh, Tom and Richard to pay for your uh you know your police and your fire and all your other services that are typically paid for with taxes if you want to be tax exempt and have all the rest of us pay your way then at least you've got to stay out of politics that that was passed in I think 1956 it was called the Johnson amendment Lyndon Johnson pushed it through and uh this was this was uh Trump's big thing is we're going to we're going to blow off the Johnson amendment and all that damage Richard thanks for the call Morris in Long Beach California hey Morris thanks for listening to KPFK what's up
4: they say it's your birthday. Dum, 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 dum. Anyway, happy birthday
2: <laughs> Thank professor. you. Thank you, Morris.
4: And hey, listen, I just want to say I am a man of Christ. I'm not an American Christian. I go by Matthew's chapter 25, verse 40. We don't have to read it now. That will also, also help you identify who the Antichrists are. But many of our problems today, Professor, begin with what is called the Doctrine of discovery. Y'all can go online and read Daniel and Paul. There's only 14 pages. Daniel and Paul, the doctrine of discovery. And it's going to go back to a guy named Pope Nicholas V, who issued what we called papal bulls. Uh, and back then, well, what that meant was, if you came across some people who were not white and Christian, you could subjugate them uh, and divinely, the Lord, the Lord God gave you the right to do such a thing. Now, these ideas have been refudiated by the World Council of Churches, which uh, have said that the doctrine of discovery was fundamentally opposed uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. And how that ties in to America today, you have to go back to Chief Justice John Marshall because American law as well as many Western European countries are tied in to the doctrine of discovery. Check it out. And I appreciate you giving me the time and happy birthday once again, Professor
2: Well thank you Morrison you're absolutely right and this was this was used to justify empire, you know, through the French Empire, the Dutch Empire, the the, the British Empire, uh, the American Empire uh... yeah we are you know taking the word of jesus to the to the noble sa- or to the savages there's nothing noble about them uh, this this story says and uh... you know enslaving them and and uh, exploiting them all in the name of jesus and and just you know keep picking that cotton and uh, your reward will come in the next lifetime and you know this whole theology this this basically kind of um, you know, enslavement theology I don't, for lack of a better phrase It's coming up on 10 minutes before the hour. We'll be back with more of your calls.
1: Is the Tom Hartman program?
2: Welcome back, Tom Hartman. Here with you. Well, this uh, I, I mentioned as we were hitting the break at the at the end of the last hour—an Airbnb stay. Uh, the story, the story started out weird, and it's getting uh, weird is the wrong word. The the story sta- started out bizarre, and it's getting even more bizarre. Uh, this, first of all, uh, directed by Kells is the uh, Facebook.com/slash Directed by Kells. Is the person who posted this and uh, directed by Kells writes, during our time in California we've been staying at an Airbnb. Uh, The 30th, that would be the last day of the month right, the the 30th was our second morning and at about 11 a.m. we checked out. The four of us packed our bags, locked up the house and left. As you can see three of the four of us are black. About 10 seconds later we were surrounded by seven cop cars. The officers came out of their cars demanding we put our hands in the air. They informed us that there was also a helicopter tracking us. They had locked down the neighborhood and said had us standing in the street. Why? A neighbor across the street saw three black people packing luggage into their car and assumed we were stealing from the house. So she called the police. At first, we joked about the misunderstanding and took photos and videos along the way. But about 20 minutes into this misunderstanding, it escalated almost instantly when their sergeant arrived. He explained that they didn't know what Airbnb was. He insisted we were lying about it and said we had to prove it. We showed them the booking confirmations and we phoned the landlord because they didn't know what she looked like on the other end. So they wanted her to come down to see us. They detained us. Because they were investigating a felony charge, they detained us for 45 minutes while we figured it out. Well, they figured it out. We've been dealing with f- different emotions, and you want to laugh about this, but it's not funny. The trauma is real. I've been angry, frustrated, and sad. I was later detained at the airport. This is insanity. The cops admitted that the woman's reason for calling the police was because we didn't wave to her as she watched us putting our luggage into our car from her lawn. <coughs> so that's part one, part two, as, uh, what's his name would say on MSNBC, is that one of the, uh, one of the three black people was the 33-year-old daughter of Bob Marley, Jamaican actress actress and filmmaker, Denisha Pendergast. The granddaughter, she's the granddaughter of reggae le- legend Bob Marley. Maybe that'll help it get a little more, uh, the uh, you know visibility. In the live video, she says there's four police officers here. We watched your neighbor call the police. The police demanded demanded that the neighbor that the owner appear in person to verify the identity of Pendergrass, who apparently was the one who booked the accommodation. Right. Amazing. Meanwhile, if you want to see how corporations exercise power in the United States, there are still a few venues left, where our elected officials who make decisions about the commons and make decisions about our lives and all that kind of stuff, there are still a few venues left where they actually have an obligation to listen to the public. Now, you remember, if Congress doesn't have that obligation, they just, you know, they can do like Mick Mulvaney bragged about, you know, hey, you know, if a, if a lobbyist comes, if they give us money, then I'll listen to them. If they don't, then I won't. They could do like, you know, Paul Ryan has done and not do a single town hall for years, it might have something to do with why he's going to leave because he knows otherwise he would be doing an Eric Cantor. And in New Orleans they have city council meetings and they actually have to the city council has to approve if you're going to build a new power plant and it's going to blow a lot of pollution particularly into poor neighborhoods like the east side, the ninth ward of, of New Orleans If you're going to build a power plant there and dump more of your poison on the poor people, then, you know, there's got to be a city council meeting to decide whether to do this or not. Now, Entergy wants to build a power plant there. And, you know, as as we all know, these power plants, they never go into affluent white neighborhoods. They always go into into neighborhoods of of people of color and and, or uh, low-income neighborhoods. So about 50 people showed up. To support this 210 million dollar power plant, and energy will make some serious money off this thing, particularly if we let them, you know, dump their poison into our air, and we don't charge them for it. So uh, a bunch of people showed up and spoke in behalf on behalf of the power plant. Yeah, we'd like a power plant here. It would be great. Turns out, somebody was paying these people to speak. City Council in March approved this power plant by a vote of 6 to 1 after listening to public comments. And now what we know is that, well, this is from uh, E.A. Crundon over at thinkprogress.org. The headline says it all. Actors were paid to attend New Orleans City Council meetings supporting power plant. <laughs> they go on to say, Several attendees told The Lens they were paid $60 to wear orange shirts and express support for the endeavor. Actors with speaking roles who read pre-written statements were reportedly paid $200. One told the publication he recognized as many as 15 other people in the audience as local performers. Keith Keough says, "Uh, they paid us to sit through the meeting and clap every time someone said something against wind and solar power. He said, I'm not political, but I needed the money. And then the, the the guy apparently ordering organizing this thing. He says the council already sports that this is mostly just to show that the citizens don't have a problem with it. Free pizza and a round of drinks after it's over. At which point you will be uh, pay will at which point pay will be dispersed in cash. I'm prepared to offer you a non-speaking role for sixty dollars plus bonus potential. They met later on at the Dave and Buster's to be paid. So this is how Craven. I mean, we're talking about the, the absolute lack of any kind of moral center or moral compass to people like Franklin Graham. And now we've got the same thing going on in corporate America, right? Uh, you know, yeah, sure, we'd love to pollute your neighborhood, and we know that you probably wouldn't like that, so we're just going to hire a bunch of actors to say, yeah, we would love please come and pollute our neighborhood. Meanwhile, Facebook has decided that they're, ti- they're tired of being kicked around by right-wing trolls, And so they're going to uh, bend over and kiss their butts. Seriously. Facebook has put together a uh, conservative bias advising partnership. And they're going to look at at, at, at liberal bias on Facebook. And so you would think it would be like you're going to have a conservative and a liberal, right? Or, uh, you know, somebody from, like, the Columbia School of Journalism, who doesn't characterize themselves as anything, but, you know, understands journalism. No, that's not how it's going to work. It's going to be the Heritage Foundation. And it's going to be John Kyle, who works as a lobbyist. now. He used to be the Republican senator from Arizona. He now works at uh, at, uh, Covington and Burlington, which is a big lobbying firm in Washington, D.C., and uh, the Heritage Foundation and John Kyle are going to figure this out. This is insane. In 2001, uh, 2011, John Kyle falsely claimed that 90% of Planned Bernard services were for abortion. This is a guy, you know, he's a climate denier. This is a guy who does not have a close relationship with the truth. And so now the Heritage Foundation and John Kyle are going to be. Helping conservatives to censor Facebook. Aren't you uh, reassured? (laughs) A lot on the table here, a lot in the news. We'll continue this conversation in just a minute. It's coming up on 15 minutes past the hour.
1: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
2: Oh, and and Senator Crapo is uh, uh, breaking campaign finance laws, according to... Uh, allied progress. We'll get to that, too. Hey, I've got to tell you about the world's best chair. Most of us spend over 2,000 hours a year sitting in our office chairs, and if you have back problems or trouble concentrating throughout the day, there's a simple reason. You're sitting in the wrong chair. Take your chair, your style, and your productivity to the next level with an X-chair. The X-chair's unique anthropomorphic design and dynamic variable lumbar support cradle your body in a way you need to feel to believe. And a more comfortable posture means better concentration and much higher productivity. In fact, if you're a business owner, there's no better way to reward your top performers than giving them an X chair. And the X Chair's sleek modern style will upgrade the entire look of your office. Give yourself and your staff the gift that pays dividends five days a week year round. Feel and see the X Chair difference by going to XchairTom.com right now. That's the letter X chair Tom T H O M. or call 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. If you're not truly thrilled by the look and feel after 30 days, return it for a full refund. Order today and save $100 and get free shipping. If you go to XCHAIRTOM.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get a free footrest. That's XCHAIRTOM.com or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. We have one here. We love it. XCHAIRTOM.com. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you. Oh, crapo, writes, uh, <laughs> writes the, the, the the fine folks over at uh, Allied Progress. Actually, Patricia Snow apparently wrote this. Oh, crapo, Senator broke campaign finance law, took too much money from payday lender. Turns out uh, Senator Crapo uh, has been—Senator uh, Mike Crapo, the guy from—he's Idaho, right? I'm pretty sure. Um has been taking money, uh, his campaign flagged two donations from a payday lender as excessive contributions. This is the Federal Election Commission. Uh, They're saying, "Uh uh-oh. And Carl Frisch, the executive director of Allied Progress, he says, Senator Crapo could avoid problems like this if he would stop raising money from these unsavory financial bottom feeders who target those who can least afford it, trapping them in endless cycles of debt with four and 500% interest rates. The FEC flagged thousands of dollars in campaign cash that a payday lender gave Crapo. That money is the direct result of real suffering caused by this predatory industry. He goes on to say, Crapo is deeply conflicted and cannot be trusted to do right by the American consumers. And then they go through all the details of who gave him money and when and all this. And it looks like Senator Crapo is, not, uh, is more interested in doing the bidding of the payday l- lenders than of, its, than of his people. George in Chicago. Hey, George. Thanks for listening to CPT. What's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure.
5: Um, a little earlier in the discussion, when you were talking about uh, various aspects of Christianity, it's coincidental with my reading a book by Chris Hedges and Joe Sacco that came out about five or six years ago called Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. Hmm. And in it, he quotes a theologian, uh, James Cone, in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, on. How white Christianity and black Christianity, though they use the same iconography and language, are very different. And that people who are crucified in ways both large and small almost every day of their life, namely our fellow Americans who are black, perceive Christianity in a much more different way. And that they see that the suffering and death on the cross is paralleled by their constant suffering and defeat and that God's loving and transcendent presence will ultimately hopefully uh, lead to some kind of redemption whether here or in the next world but it it represents a flicker of hope in the middle of the worst kind of oppression and, and tyranny and sadness
2: so you're your your point is that white and black Christians view Christianity fundamentally differently.
5: I think so because um, too many white Christian denominations are like um, they, they remind me of, of kingdoms where the uh, the founder uh, passes on his yeah. kingdom to his inheritor, his son, like the Grams and the Fallwells, right. and they're all about. Accruing worldly power.
2: Well, and also, wealth. yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's it for for white churches, you know, white parishioners. Hey, I, we've got ours, right? We've got our white privilege, and so now let's talk about, how, you know, the the prosperity gospel, for example. Whereas, although the prosperity gospel is is growing in in black churches as well, um, as as heretical as it may be in the minds of many of us, but uh, but there you've got church as an organizing principle around you know social issues specifically civil rights uh, as as it historically has been you know historically the church was a uh, progressive social instrument so that's that's interesting george thanks well, the for point, the
5: the point that really struck me strongly is at which i never really realized or saw before is that in the eyes of a black christian the cross and a, a lynching tree are very
2: much the same Wow, yeah, interesting point. Uh, George, thank you for that. Joe in Terre Haute, Indiana. Hey Joe, what's up? Hey Tom, big fan, great show today. Thanks. Um, for the sake of time, I'll keep it short, but um,
6: I experienced something the other day, uh, a lot like that story uh, that you told about Bob Marley's granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had made a Facebook post about it and uh, I just got crucified for, I mean, you know, saying that that was racism. Um, and I just think that nothing's really going to change as far as that goes um, until white people just kind of lose this denial that we're in that it's actually still
2: happening. Yeah. What was the story you, uh, you, you posted on Facebook, Joe?
6: Well, I was uh, walking into uh, it's the most popular store in the country um, the other day. And there were a couple of black gentlemen standing out front. Um, this like is like a Walmart you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they looked like they were waiting on somebody, so I went in. I was in there about five minutes. Um, walked out and they were still standing there, no big deal. Uh, as I'm walking to my truck, I started walking up on this older white gentleman um, who actually happened to be wearing a Second Amendment is not negotiable t shirt. Um, and as I got close to him, he jumped like three feet in the air, like I scared him. And I said, Oh, I'm sorry, I it didn't scare you. And he said, Oh, I, I just saw those two guys standing back there, you know, and they've been standing there a while. And I got kind of nervous. I, I just kind of didn't know what to say so I just walked to my truck and I was like man that just made me sick to my stomach that that guy just assumed that those guys were out there to do something to him
2: yeah well and this is I mean, uh, you know but that that fearfulness is something that you would expect to see in somebody wearing a pro second amendment t-shirt yeah I was glad
6: he didn't have a gun
2: yeah well and that's 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 I mean you know there you go with the, the you know the guy who killed Trayvon Martin I mean you know it's, right, exactly. it's there you go Bob, thanks for the call, and thanks for sharing the story with us. You know, it's slowly we wake up. uh, Unfortunately, way too slowly. But there is change coming. Change is happening. And it's, it's, I think, broadly speaking, a net positive change, even change in the church.
1: You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925.
2: But in particular, we need a change in our government to say that we are not a government that is affiliated with any church or religion.
1: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
2: Welcome back to the third hour of our program. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with me, Ambassador Ira Shapiro. He is the president of Shapiro Global Strategies, international trade lawyer, former staffer to U.S. Senators from Robert Byrd to J. Rockefeller, uh, the author of The Last Great Senate, Courage and Statesmanship in Times of Crisis, and most recently, Broken, Can the Senate Save Itself and the Country? ShapiroGlobal.com is his website, and you can tweet him at Shapiro Global ambassador welcome to the program well Tom it's
3: good to be with you
2: thank you thanks for joining us uh, I you know I found your article over at uh, real clear politics fascinating this whole idea that we used to have um, Democratic centrists and Republican centrists who got together and did things that actually worked for the country can you elaborate on that <clears throat> well Tom
3: I wrote about my first book was about the Senate of the nineteen sixties and seventies going right up through the end of the seventies the parties were closer together then they were more not as ideologically divided uh... far apart but the other thing about it was these were people who actually understood the need to try to solve the nation's problems and they really engaged very substantially on 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 the whole range of serious issues what we've seen In recent years, is the exact opposite. Not only are the parties much further apart ideologically, but there's been no effort to engage and seriously solve problems. All we have is tribal politics, practiced particularly strongly by Senator McConnell.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and to the detriment, I would say, of the entire nation. Particularly when you consider what he did with Merrick Garland, uh, it, it strikes me that. 40, 50 years ago, uh, or even, even 30 years ago, I'd say right up until really in a big way the Reagan era, uh, that you had politicians who were reactive and responsive to special interests, to corporate interests, to, to the interests of the wealthy, but they weren't owned by them to the extent that they are today. So you could have, uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans for example, in the, in, the, in the late 60s, early 70s, having a debate about how much we should clean up our air and our water, but not having a debate about whether or not there was even, uh, you know, a scientific reality of dirty air or dirty water, whereas now you've got a, a, a Republicans unwilling to even acknowledge the scientific reality of climate change because they are a, a wholly owned subsidiary now of the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, industry after industry after industry, you can go through and find the, that these are not, you know, for example, net neutrality, you know, the, the, the vast majority of Republicans want net neutrality, um, but not to mention Democrats, but uh, uh, voters. But if you look at the elected officials who are taking money from the big, you know, internet service providers and the big uh, telco companies uh, to a person, they are opposed to net neutrality, and they, they cloak it in all kinds of BS language, but we all know it's BS language. Isn't that the real issue, that in 1976, when the Supreme Court in the Buckley decision said that if a corporation or a billionaire wants to own a politician, that that's considered free speech? That, that, that had never been the case prior to 1976 in the history of the United States. And then, and then they cemented that with Citizens United in 2010.
3: I certainly think you're right about how harmful those decisions were. But I also think, if you look at it, Tom, what you see, even after the the Buckley decision, you see senators and Republican senators throughout much of the 80s still pretty good public servants, pretty aware of their obligations to balance corporate interests and the public interest. They had pretty good environmental records, for example. Sometime, whether you make it the late 80s, the early 90s, the Republican Party keeps going right and Newt Gingrich was a crucial participant in this he was the catalyst for a lot of it and politics became not only the per- what's called the permanent campaign but increasingly uh, unwilling unwillingness to compromise and unwillingness to look at the public interest and when I look at the last 30 years I would say that two key people uh, who've had great influence from Newt Gingrich and Mitch McConnell? Mm.
2: Yeah, and and I mean you could go back and look at the uh, caucus room conspiracy the 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 night January twentieth yes. two thousand nine that night that and Robert Draper wrote the book about this when the Tea Party came to town um, when when President Obama and his wife were you know newly inaugurated dancing at the balls in D.C. Uh, you had uh, fourteen or seventeen members of Congress uh, getting together with uh, Newt Gingrich and and Frank Luntz in the Caucus room restaurant. I used to live on the back side of that building, <laughs> and uh, and basically vowing to each other that uh, they were going to destroy the Obama presidency, no matter even even issues that they had historically completely agreed with him on. They were not going to allow him to have any victories. He was going to have a failed presidency. And Gingrich no, that's bragged exactly about
3: exactly right. And in addition to that, to the book you referred to, I I encourage people just to look at McConnell's own memoir, mm. where he talks about. Convening the Senate Republicans for their strategy session and figuring out how to take down the president, and he he, he paints a picture of a dark, bleak, rainy day, and everyone is depressed. They weren't depressed that the country was facing an economic catastrophe; they were depressed that the Democrat had become president. Right. I can't think of a more shameful act by a leader than the effort that he made and to mobilize his people all the republicans against the economic stimulus that was so desperately needed
2: so if we look at the, at policy if we look at the level of policy in the democratic party take take health care for example there's a a robust debate among democrats about whether we should you know come up with a stronger new and improved version of obamacare or whether we should simply go with single-payer health care but on both sides the consensus you know the absolute opinion on both sides of that debate is we want to get as much health care to as many people as possible, the lowest price possible, and, you know, it's just a question of what's politically viable or feasible. Whereas on the Republican side, uh, I don't think that there's any consensus that people are even entitled to health care or should have health care. You know, they they won't even acknowledge things like the public public health crisis. You know, I mean, every other developed country in the world, their health care system, their single-payer health care, or the equivalent of it, is part of their public health, you know. So, so if they have a, an outbreak of, of uh, you know, the 1919, you know, pandemic flu or something, that they're ready for it. I mean, they literally won't have that conversation or any other conversation because they want to make sure to protect the profits of, of you know, the healthcare industry, the health insurance industry. You have people like Stephen J. Hemsley, the CEO of United Healthcare, who's taken over a billion dollars in compensation for that company. Um, they own a bunch of politicians. How—you how, know, do, A, do you think that I'm overstating it to say that there is basically no legitimacy with, with regard to these major issues where the Republicans are simply refusing to even have a reasonable conversation? Economics also, you know, the whole uh, trickle-down economics, still pretending that, it, that it's a thing, you know, and when it's over and over and over again been proven to be B.S., Whereas on the Democratic side, there's actually still debates about, okay, how do we get to, to free college for everyone? How do we get to, to health care for everyone? How do we get to you know a strengthened Social Security system? It, it seems to me increasingly that to even call the Republican Party legitimate does a disservice to this, this discussion. I think the central
3: – unfortunately, I think the central part of our politics over the last 30 years has been – the move from the, of the Republican Party from being a respectable sort of center-right party uh, to a party that doesn't believe in government and doesn't, doesn't accept the results of elections unless they win them. So if you look back uh, in, in the 80s and ni- even the 90s, you could see Republicans who were engaging on the issue of health care whether it was Chafee from Rhode Island or Durenberger from Minnesota or or in Hatch. These were were people who were trying to figure out something on health care. When Obama reached out to Republicans on health care, a couple of them sort of listened to him for a while, but McConnell basically talked them out of it. And he, he, he says as much in his memoir. He sort of beat them into line. So... They don't engage on any of the issues. And at this point, for someone like me who talks about bipartisanship, I have to acknowledge the difficulty of bipartisanship if one party isn't going to engage at all. Right. The answer there is very crushing defeats in elections.
2: Yeah. And and you know, from your lips to God's ears. I mean, let's hope that that's what's yeah. what's, what's coming down the road. Ambassador Irish Shapiro, uh, ShapiroGlobal.com is the website. You can tweet him at uh, ShapiroGlobal. Uh, his most recent book, Broken: Can the Senate Save Itself and the Country? Before that, The Last Great Senate. Uh, Ambassador, thank you for dropping by today.
3: Well, Tom, you're a great uh, a great spokesman for progressive values and policies.
2: Thank, thank you. you, thank you. It's a, it's an honor to hear that from you.
1: Thank you very much, sir. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program.
2: So, how do we walk back the damage that the Republican Party is doing to our country? Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, helping you win the water cooler wars. Brad in Elkrow Village, Illinois. Hey, Brad, what's on your mind?
7: Hi, it's great to be on the air. Uh, as I'm on a little much, but um, here's the thing. Back in the 1980s, wasn't there a bunch of Russian purchasers of the condos in Trump Tower? And on top of that, uh, when you start talking about allegiance to foreign powers, investors, doesn't that become something along the Manchurian candidate uh, treasonous
2: line? Well, that's the whole point. That's the question that I'm, I'm wondering, is what is it going to take for Americans to turn on Donald Trump? Is it going to take for them to realize that he's been putting people into place like Ryan Zinke and Scott Pruitt and, and Betsy DeVos, whose specific goal is to transfer uh, public assets to private assets, whether it's privatizing our schools— you know, polluting our air and water, or selling off our public lands—is that going to do it? Is it going to be that he's he's acting on behalf of foreign interests, of foreign oligarchs? Is that going to do it? Is it going to be that he's having—you know—he had sex with the women who weren't his wives, and his wives—I guess you say it plurally—and uh, didn't report it? Or is it going to be something else altogether? What do you think it's going to take? Well, it's- it's so,
7: it's, well, the Christian, uh, the unChristian uh, right wing is totally compromised on this. And I just think that, I don't know, is it is it going to take something that happens that, where it's
2: almost too late to do anything once it happens? Yeah. That's my great fear. Well, yeah, my, my great fear is another 9-11 kind of incident while you've got somebody like Donald Trump in the White House, um, including one that might be... Uh, of say less than uh, stellar provenance, but uh, well, origin, but uh, yeah,
7: or it's or it's just almost or it's just almost uh, a a a takedown of some part of the government. Yeah. That's that's what I'm really worried about. That he's in a position now where he's just nobody's nobody's, Gosh, well, yeah, I look at look, look at what they're doing to EPA.
2: Look at what they're doing to Interior. Look at what they're—I mean, you know—look at what they're doing to Labor Department. I mean, cut, you know, agency after agency. Brad, excellent points, all. Thank you for the call, Dave in Newport Richie, Florida. Hey, Dave. Hey, Tom. Happy birthday, buddy. Thank you. Um,
8: I'll take a crack at the question you posed. that's going to bring Trump down. I I don't think it's going to be the sex scandals because we all knew what he was like beforehand. And it needs to be the Russian thing. He's going to be so guilty. Mueller is going to bring him down hard, and it has to be because there's something far more important than getting Trump out of there. It's bringing down this entire complicit Republican Party. You know, they are the ones who have strained our institutions. You know, the Constitution um, has uh, remedies for tyrants or or, or knaves in in the Oval Office. What they didn't imagine, the founders, was a whole party of complicit, party-first, literal traitors, because this is nothing nothing short of treason. And we can't, and this goes to another question you posed a, a, a while back before one of your breaks, you know, how do we walk back all the damage they've done. We have to purge this country of Republicans in office at every level. They are no longer a legitimate party. They don't try and win... Support or debates or elections by by merits of a legitimate argument. They try and dupia you. They try and sure. so, throw sand in your eyes at every turn. And you know, it, 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 we can't fix our problems until we identify them. You did that. I turned on the radio today, and you were talking about this this very thing. And you're so right. And I'm glad you know you're just clear-eyed and speaking cold
2: hard truth. it's Thank critical you, Thank you, Dave. You're I, I, it's spot on. We've we've got to wake up. <laughs> you know, Andrea. In Crawfordville, Florida. Hey, Andrea, what's on your mind today?
9: Hey, Tom. Happy birthday. Pleasure to be talking to you. I like to see your show all the time. Thank you. I, I wanted to touch on something that a couple of your earlier callers I heard uh, mention When you talk about the difference between uh, the expression of Christianity between uh, African-Americans and Caucasians, that is absolutely a thing. Um, I actually teach history at the college level, and I've been teaching uh, this concept for several years now. And if you go all the way back to the Second Great Awakening during the 19th century, when many African-Americans were first gaining exposure to Judeo-Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition. You're talking um, the 1870s to
2: the 1890s there, the, the whole Transcendentalist movement, that stuff?
9: Well, I actually, call, I, when you talk about the 1890s, that's actually getting you late into the 19th century. Uh-huh. I'm talking about the 1830s, 40s, oh, which, okay. which did include the Transcendental Movement.
0: Right. The um, great it revival. also was
9: the kickstart or the fuel behind the a lot of the reform movements dealing with temperance and women's yep. rights and all the rest of it, of the mid 19th century. Yep. And um, a lot of the exposure to Christianity was at that time under the guise of it will make for better slaves. You know, it'll make them more docile. It'll make them more passive. And so when slaves attended church services with their masters, they frequently got treated to theology rooted in passages of Scripture like Ephesians 6, 5, slaves, obey your masters. Of course, everybody's favorite uh, commandment, thou shalt not steal. Um, And and, and also, you know, not to be too concerned with their life here on earth because their true reward is in the afterlife. But as I, I was explaining to your screener. African-Americans throughout the South, frequently as an act of protest, would take to the woods surrounding the plantations that they lived on and and, and conduct secret church meetings. And it was out of these secret church meetings that, if you look at the founding dates of a lot of your African-American churches, particularly in the South, um, they were established out in the open uh, after the Civil War, during Reconstruction. But a lot of those churches actually had their start before the Civil War, in the woods, where the slaves had to worship in secret, because for them to have got caught without the presence of a white person engaging in any form of, you know, meeting or camaraderie and the like, uh, could have been, you know, punishable. And when they did their church services in secret, the theology that they exercised was much more Old Testament-based, and they were particularly attracted, and you might, you might uh, understand why... They were particularly attracted to Exodus stories because yes. they saw themselves as the ancient uh, Israelites who uh, were similarly enslaved by an oppressive uh, master and oppressive power in Egypt. And so that's where they derived a lot of their mental and psychological strength to withstand the rigors of enslavement.
2: Yeah. That's that's uh, and I mean that's,
9: that's really continued on into this very day. So yeah. I mean even in in 2018, you go into the white church, quote unquote, in the white church, mm. messages you're going to hear from the pulpit, it's the same Bible, <laughs> right. but it's not only going to be different in in mode, but it's going to be different in emphasis.
2: I get it, and I and, and and out of its out of its origin stories, essentially, yeah, brilliant, Andrea. Thank you so much for that lesson, and thank you thank you for educating me. I appreciate it.
1: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
2: Fifteen minutes before the hour, back with more of your calls right after this. Conversation here, Ray in McHenry, Illinois. Hey, Ray, your thoughts on evangelicals sticking with Trump?
10: Yeah. Uh, this, I was. I grew up an evangelical. Here's some things I was thinking about. I don't know if anybody's ever shared this, but most people have an external locus control, which means they see others and what happens to, to them as being the cause of how they feel. Well, evangelicals have a variation on that where they seek and even pray for the help of someone outside themselves to deliver them from the misery on earth. Think about how many times Trump portrayed himself as that person. How many times do we hear him say, I'm the only one that can do something, which is really close to what I remember hearing growing up as an evangelical, where Jesus said, I am the way, I am the light. And the other thing is the word believe is also such a big part of their lives. They've been taught, you know, you're brainwashed almost to believe in spite of all kinds of evidence in your life to the contrary that might suggest it doesn't make sense or doesn't do any good or might even hurt. And to have faith and believe even more when you start to have doubts and never, ever lose your faith in Jesus or God. Trump, think about how many times Trump used the words, believe me, believe me. It's fascinating. Me, that's it's just fascinating. I... into that, believe in me, believe in him. It's like conditioning of Pavlov's dogs.
2: It's just he's tapping it's, into
10: something very deep.
2: It's conditioning in the context of a salvationistic culture. I mean, you know, the, right. the, 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 the whole key to evangelical and salvationistic religions is that they believe that some force external of us will save us. You know, Jesus right. will save you. And so yep. if you if you are uh, conditioned to believe in salvationism, then believing that Jesus, that that uh Trump is gonna be your savior makes perfect sense. That's amazing. Ray, thanks for that. Jesse in Mountain Grove, Illinois. Jesse, what's on your mind?
7: I remember uh two thousand fourteen and two thousand fifteen I had sort of a uh you hadn't yet hello moment and you were talking about race and sort of the uh minor um, indignities that people face every day, and I totally identify with that, and um, just in response to um, what the caller said earlier about men jumping in the parking lot, and I just thought that it's so ironic that, you know, people with the Harris, uh, whose forebearers, they, they, um, they did so much yeah. to harm others. Jesse, other people Jesse,
2: they... I'm, I'm sorry, we're out of time. Thanks so much for being with us today, and don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. You know, it just doesn't work without you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. will see you tomorrow.
1: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.
4: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail.